welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Boy, could not have done what they did. But that's the point of the demystifying and demythologizing uh, founder stuff. Like Roy will say with one breath that founder is a seven-letter word. Uh, that seven-letter F word. But by doing it, he calls attention to himself as a founder. So that he's half dreading it and half loving it. And uh, gradually he will be freed from that, just as each of us are freed from our ego and its burdens. And uh, that's got nothing to do with me. All I could tell you about is history as I saw it. That is not a definitive history. That was just history through my eyes only. And uh, Roy has presented a history through his eyes as he sees it. And it always hurt me that the work of the fellowship, the people that participated in that process with me, were never recognized and even scorned and, and hidden and disguised in the history, were never uh, recognized. But that's of no consequence because the fact is we have the fellowship. So the issue of recognition is not a factor. I keep telling my sponsees, if you're looking for appreciation, you'll find it under A in the dictionary. <laughs> you'll get all you want right there. So I, I needed you to know that, and I'm so glad to, that I had this chance to say this. So you had your hand up. I'm George. I'm a grateful recovery sexaholic. Hi, George. Hi, George. Um, I was struck by the powerful example that you gave and to me, a true leader, I watch what they do, not what they say. And I was struck by the brutal honesty that you gave us this morning and what I need to do in my life. And that's how it affected me. Thank you very much. Vince used to sit at the bargaining tables with the 12 apostles and they were banging away on him. And of course, being a sexaholic, he wanted to sit at the head of the table. So he says to himself, what does it take to sit at the head of the table? And his answer was, he said, I found that I had to be able to demonstrate. Until I could demonstrate, I couldn't do anything. Now, he also pointed out the power of negative demonstration. And he, when he said, he said, the father sits down at the table and talks against the law. That night, the kid goes out and puts a contract out against his father to have him shot. So that the example that I gave was horrible. And uh, now, through the grace of God, I'm sometimes able to give a better example to where my life is saying how blessed we are to have you because the family has needed me desperately. My one son... Yeah, in that sickness, I, did I tell you about that? Um, he has arterial edema, an inherited disease, and it hits him in the lungs, and his lungs swell up from the edema, 
and looks like asthma, and he had an oxygen deprivation, and his IQ went from college professor IQ to dishwasher IQ in 24 hours. We don't know just when, about a year ago. And he was going to the doctors, and they couldn't find out what was wrong around the country. He went to, from Hobbs, New Mexico, to, Washington, or to Seattle, Washington Medical School, and then out to Oklahoma City looking for a refuge, and he saw 20, 30 doctors, and nobody could have an answer. And my wife and I said, Jess, come home. And we financed him by borrowing money in our retirement, him and his wife and his kids. And we got him diagnosed now, and, and they know what it is, and we got him, uh, helped him get Social Security because a dishwasher is not good at things like that. And so we have three families living within 150 yards of each other in a treader court. Now here's the big shot of sold the big home up Bridger Canyon, the kind that makes people's eyes bug out, and I'm living in a double-wide trailer on, on a trailer court. And I'm happier than I've ever been. But it's all part of, of demonstration, of being able to demonstrate to my family through my actions what I believe in, in a way that I could never do before. I was tearing my family apart instead of demonstrating unity. And of course it tells what this program teaches us which is not just to live at peace with unsolved problems. But I was telling Dan's wife at uh, the lunch break, I was telling her about that situation. That's why I thought maybe I told you about it. But I said it teaches us to laugh even as we live with unsolved problems. And uh, so that that's the power of this program. And never forget, you know, I, how could I forget those stories of Vince? They claim he's dead. You can't prove it by me. Sometimes he's way more active than my situation. I do. I show my humanity, as I so often do, too much. And I say, but Vince, I'm only human. And he said, well, that's fine. But he said, you don't act to have to act so much like a monkey. <laughs> and a lot of times I'm acting like a monkey. <laughs> but uh, there is another spiritual tradition where they talk about... Uh, I think I may have told you that, a, a bag of expectations of the past over one shoulder and uh, expectations about the future over the other. And when you put them both down, you're enlightened, and then you start to laugh. And I listened to the early Chuck tape, or the late Chuck tapes, and of course he's laughing. And so I thought, what the hell did I laugh about? Because I didn't think anything about it. This was earlier, some maybe 10 years ago. And then I finally got the... Early, got wise and said, "Let's look at some early Chuck tapes." And saw he just an ordinary guy in garden variety, gifted speaker uh, on those early tapes. And um, but he wasn't, and he wasn't laughing. But what it is is, in one spiritual tradition, when you put down those two sacks, you're called enlightened. And they, they have people who are enlightened who certify that you are enlightened because an enlightened person can tell another enlightened person. It's just like any of you who are experienced at anything, you can interview some person who claims to be good at that and you can ask them about five questions and you can know whether they're good at it or not. And so it doesn't take much examination for an enlightened person in that spiritual tradition to tell if somebody else is enlightened. But one of the things that the hallmark of that enlightenment is laughter is the people who have that laugh a lot. And so that I see uh, a lot of us doing a lot more laughing than we used to do. So I know which way we're headed by my idea of what spiritual means. Now, I see a lot of people who are pretty serious still, 
and they got good reason to be serious. When I was caught in the snares of my addiction, <laughs> if I wouldn't have been serious, I would not have had a true appraisal of the situation. And I guess that's one of the things also that I would say to the young guy there last night. You say, hey, it shows you have a true picture of your situation. Now, that's very honest. And, of course, that's why Bill put rigorous honesty in honesty so many times. I think honesty is five times in the first part of Chapter 5. I counted them up one time in a big book study I was in. And again, another part of this is a continuous study. I've got about maybe 200 AA tapes, and the Chuck and Clancy and early uh, Bobby E. tapes are, you know, I've, we've used them so much. And I've actually got some of them memorized. But I go over and over and over again, building a new building a new consciousness and a new understanding, getting rid of, of the old one. And like I say, when I'm watching the Celtics games, uh, I... I mute out the sound when it comes to the commercials and uh, like uh, beer commercials I can't watch. Uh, I've got all the images that I ever want. I mean, i got way more images than I ever want in my head. I don't want ever add another more. I was reading um, in a magazine that uh, I'm going to be a lot more careful about now. When I'm reading, I saw a Vanity Fair and I was about to, to look at it, but I, I didn't on the issue that uh, some... Uh, most magazines uh, are dangerous for me, as well as most television shows. And so, but I was reading an article in uh, Gentleman's Quarterly, which I'd picked, so I picked up three or four copies that somebody left given away or something, and, and was reading an article on uh, San Francisco's uh, 49ers, uh, Steve Young, and, and the article carries over into the back part, so I'm over in the back part looking for it, and I forgot the lead-in word that I should be looking for. And so I started reading this one carryover word, and it was the first paragraph of the most pornographic. Uh, some woman had written a novel for Gentleman's Quarterly, a short novelette or something, and it was just a horribly explicit sexual situation. And I was halfway into the paragraph before I became conscious of what I was even reading. And, and I, so I immediately got off of it. But there was it just made me sick. I just felt sick like you'd get from the flu, vomity sick. And what it is is I, I have so I take so little lust in anymore that a, even just uh, a small amount of it like that it was bad lust, but even just a small amount of it was disturbing to the equanimity that's there most of the time in me. Okay, sponsorship. Oh, uh, let's see. Didn't we have somebody? Oh, I know. Larry, was it Larry or Terry? Yeah, you had a question. Uh, when we uh, uh, say we've been sexually sober, uh, we've been sexually sober for uh, say over a year, maybe two years, three years, and we're um, it's, it's become like we just uh, we have experienced times where we're entertaining lust, right, and. Uh, We've gotten good at, not, at, at the fact that we're not, uh, it's sobriety definition, we're still sober, but technically we're, we're yeah. not, you know. Yeah. Well, you aren't sober anymore after, when you, there comes a point when you, when you do what you know you're not supposed to do, you ain't sober. Okay. Okay. Now, there's a simple way to measure that, and I don't know, I haven't told, this is a story I've come to recently, an understanding of lust. And that is, lust comes to the door of my house, and my house has got a glass door, glass top. Okay, it comes to the door, and I see lust out there. But that door has a handle only on the inside. There's no handle on lust's side. 
lust can come into my house and set off all the physiological and other reactions only if I go to the door and open the door and let lust in. If I don't, if I go and open the door and let lust in, I have slipped. Because I have to make a conscious decision to get up from where I am to get to that door and open the door. That's a slip. A guy called me with some years of sobriety and he had some rather serious transgressions. And I said, I'm not your sponsor, but you better go and talk to your sponsor and ask him if you've had a slip. And uh, I knew who his sponsor was and I said, that particular sponsor is a very mild-mannered man and he might be hesitant to confront you on your slip. So I would suggest that you present it to him on the basis of, I think I have had a slip and make it easy for him to say, yes, you have had, rather than say, have I had a slip and make it hard for him. He said, well, if that sponsor is that mild-mannered, maybe I should go to a tougher sponsor or maybe I should go to Roy. And I said, yeah, go to Roy. And he went to Roy and Roy said, yeah, you, yeah, Roy asked him some very specific questions and said, yes, you've had a slip. Okay. Uh... Again, it's like Vince said, when we're young in this program, not much is expected of us. But after we've been in this program a while, there is more expected of us. And more, we must expect more of ourselves. Uh, there are a couple of pretty faces here. And I have to practice control of the eyes. An old, you know, when I've heard this expression, which comes from the religious orders... I thought, what a weird expression. But no, that's not a weird expression. It's control of the eyes. And I practice control of the eyes not to even... It's not lusting, but I, I don't want to even come close to lusting. It would be lusting for me to dwell too long on, on a couple of those faces. That uh, if I start dwelling on it, well, then pretty soon there comes a line where I might go and open the door. And I'm powerless over this stuff. And so it's very important for me to understand that. Uh, one of the great spiritual teachers teaches that with women we need to look at our feet or look at their feet. And I never heard of that idea and it's a tremendous idea because uh, it seems like other spiritual programs have some of the same difficulties in their, in their people that, that we sexaholics have. We look at people and objectify them by looking at the sexual parts of people, faces, form, but the feet don't have a, except, and there's one guy that I know, in fact, the guy's sponsor, he's got a foot fetish. So when he goes, <laughs> when he goes to a party and people take off their shoes, it drives him nuts. And I've told him, I said, you must handle that. Either tell the people to put, please put back on their shoes, you can't handle it, it's your problem, or just get out of there. Rather than be mamby pamby and, oh gosh, what can I do, poor baby, you know. Uh, some of you have asked for the tapes that uh, I would referred to earlier. They were the tapes that are on page seven of the individual tape list, uh, done in uh, Matuka, Matukan, New Jersey, in December or November fifth of '94. It's stopping the lust or stopping the poison, sex lust, the SA bust to sainthood, stopping all the other poisons, and the world's worst disease, sexaholism. Those are the four tapes that I did there, and those plus this will uh, be the first of perhaps 
many discharges of my uh, fellowship obligation over the next uh, 20, 30, 40 years. There's no hurry because we've got all the rest of our lives. There's no hurry. And that speaks to the point of gradualness of these, sec- of these spiritual programs is not accepting gradualness and wanting it now is lust. Greed. So all of you are going fast enough if you're going to plenty of meetings, if you're doing your reading, if you're doing your 12-step work, if you're practicing freedom from lust, that's, that's as fast as you go. And that's why it's taken me 30 years to get here. But another way I can look at that is say, my God, look what just 30 little years will do. And look, in 30 years, I've got paradise. In fact, what I'm going to do to you is I'm going to read to you the thing I was going to read to you at the end. So we'll have the ending right now. (laughs) And then later on we'll have the middle. I had to see my fear of being known. Now I know there is nothing to fear about being known. Even more, there is a great joy in being known just as I am. Each word I write here lets you know me. We don't really get finished up with this being known until we can write out everything we ever did and nail it up on the courthouse door. I'm not there yet, but that's the direction I'm heading with the help of my friends. In the early days, I wanted a utopia like Shangri-La. But all utopias fail. There's a great hope and a great understanding hidden in that. We think we can figure out a community and even a world where all things are good. All the attempts that have been made at that have failed except one. The one exception is the utopia that you and I live in today, this life of yours and mine. That is the real utopia. How can that be? Simple. All our self-created utopias banish the possibility of suffering, struggle, evil, and pain. They fail to see that the, like, that the humans, like the butterfly, need the struggle against the opposing force within ourselves to grow strong so we can fly. And that alludes to the butterfly struggling to get its way out of the cocoon and that fibrous area just above its wings that hold it in there. A little kid said, well, I'll get a pin and free the butterfly. And he did and helped the butterfly break loose and the butterfly walked away and could never fly because that struggle was what strengthened his wings so he would be able to step out of a cocoon into flight. And the struggle that you and I are making with our addiction is like the butterfly's struggle that strengthens our wings so that we can fly. They fail to see that humans, like the butterfly, need the struggle against the opposing force within ourselves to grow strong so we can fly. Only a few exceptional people are young saints. All the rest of us have to suffer at each turn our devious mind takes as we look for the way of no pain. We have to go down the blind alleys of the mind so often before we finally give up on our great minds. Many of us have to be beaten up right up to being at death's door before we will finally look for a better way. The lies the ego tells us are all we have ever known. We want to place what we think of as the enemy as out there someplace. We we find all kinds of reasons for attempting that. We blame our parents, our churches, our relatives, our community, our family. Those voices we hear in our heads are the same voices those people in our past also seem to hear in their heads. But the lies that we hear 
in our heads seem very real to us. But the people in the past were telling themselves the same lies about themselves that we tell ourselves about ourselves. We can prove this easily by moving to a desert paradise where we are all alone. Then we see how we have brought the lies with us. We still say it was their fault that we think this way. Then one day in our island paradise we wake up and see that we are the liars. We are the only enemy we have. Only on that day can we start to listen to the truth that sets us free. On that day we finally see that all our ideas of utopia leave out the most obvious necessity to grow and experience the dark side of ourselves so we can come into the light on our own. Just as the butterfly needs its struggle, we need our struggle to break down the dictatorship of our mind that keeps us living in a half-world that denies our part in the suffering we create and blames it on others. And in that half-world of the mind, there is some pleasure, some laughter, and some tears. But it robs us of the rest of our laughter, the full measure of our joys and sorrows, that lets us finally experience life to the very fullest. Some of, none of the utopian planners down through the centuries would ever have imagined looking around them in their everyday life for the real utopia. Yet it is there. We see this when we observe so-called ideal tribal societies sitting alongside more diverse societies. The tribal society has worked out through hundreds of thousands of years systems to handle problems. Yet if there's a modern city 500 miles away, many of the young people will migrate to the city. They want more excitement than their little village can offer. They don't pay enough attention to their spiritual quests, to the fact that jobs are hard to find and, women, and food and housing are scarce. They want excitement. And it isn't just the young who leave. Many of the adults make trip to the big city to experience its wonders and bring back their stories and experiences to the villages. They do that or they stay in the city and never come back. In the last 200 years, we have seen this happening all over the world. Hawaii, China, India, Africa, North Africa, and the Middle East all have shown us the power of a city's diversity to attract people away from tribal communities. We blame the city and we criticize the choices people make. Yet in so doing, we miss the richness of life and the risks. We, we, we miss the richness of life and risk and the risks people make. And in so doing, we miss the richness of life and the risk and possibility of suffering that people are attracted to. And we fail to note that most people don't return to their ideal tribal communities. If you would mention ideas like these to the utopian, he or she would hoot you down as a fool. Each utopian is so full of what they think is right that they can't see the good that is right under their noses. They haven't yet seen the necessity of the dark side of us in its place in defining the light. The other world is all about pure light. But this place, our vacation from pure light, is about darkness and light. And darkness and light is in each one of us, not just in the bad ones among us. We want to assume that we have the virtues and that those others out there are absent of the virtues. Finally, we find that life is about understanding for each of us that we are totally absent of any virtue. Once we face that, we are free at last. Then we can look to the source of all virtue for the daily transforming of ourselves that sets our feet on our own tailor-made-for-us free path home. I'll never forget a friend from New York who had the blessings of a couple of addictions. He was free of one but not of the other for a while. He said to me before he died early, Jess, I would get off work and know where I should go, but my feet just wouldn't take me home. Now we can have feet to take us home every day. What is there outside us that we lack? Heaven is openly shown to our eyes. All our problems disappear. They were just ego delusions. Now we make the real connection every moment. Every moment we are home. There are no dark paths to lead us astray. No more obstructions. Our dancing and songs and laughter 
reflect our true union. This earth where we stand is the very word and thought of God. There is nothing other than that anymore. It's kind of like I was using my glasses to search for a better pair of glasses. So I was using the very thing I was searching for to search with. And I'm finding solidly what it was I was searching for with what I was searching. And this is why I see that I think sexaholics are the most blessed of all of the people because we're guaranteed so much terrible suffering that it would take a real hard-headed idiot to persist in that suffering. And then we use that gradual increasing freedom from suffering to carry us home. As you know, that. We were making the real connection. We were home. Thoreau said men live lives of quiet desperation. Well, you're looking at a man that doesn't live a life of quiet desperation. I know who I am and I know where I should be. And I know what I should do. Now, it isn't that every moment is great. There are some very difficult times. It isn't I don't have any doubt. I do at times. It doesn't last very long anymore. So they, I came into this program and they said, you got to act as if. And just as Vince used to say, I wore the mask for so long I became the mask. So I acted as if so long I became what I acted as if I was. And people tell me, well, I'm whining on the phone. I got this problem and that problem. And I tell them, act as if you didn't have the problem. That's not natural. Yeah, it isn't. I know what acting natural got you. It got you in that miserable mess that you're in. (laughs) And I know how miserable it is because I've been there too. (laughs) Okay, question. Give me your best shot. Give me that tough one. Yeah. Uh, I'm Ron. Hi, Ron. My question is, you had talked earlier um, this morning on um, slightly being present. On one of your other tapes, you had talked about uh, being emotionally present. Yeah. And I was just wondering, uh, is that something that would necessarily follow sobriety, a good sobriety, or is that something that I could work on as a recovering sexaholic? Yeah, it's a good thing. Uh, Okay, is being present and emotionally present something that just kind of follows inevitably or something that you work on and can work on? And the answer is, yeah. Yeah. uh, there are a whole bunch of things that we need to do to get out of space cadets and learn to improve and sharpen our concentration. Uh, one of the ways I, I define it for my sponsees is, you ner- uh, and I've been able to do it here, I'm able to talk with you and be as fully available to you as I can be at this moment, but I also have uh, X percent of my attention on a hawk that circles here 
and watches everything. And when my hawk sees something, it tells me that quick now, hey, you got a problem, buddy. Now, it isn't always instantaneous. Like I can walk into our post office and some pretty woman comes in that I happen to know for some reason and I might be shucking and jiving her for two, three minutes uh, and walk out without my hawk having nudged me in the shoulder and say, hey, buddy, get out of here. But uh, it ain't very long. Uh, one of my sponsees uh, who was uh, acting out with uh, men uh, was driving home uh, and pulled off a freeway exit and uh, pulled up and the payphone was ringing and he gets out of his car and answers the payphone and somebody looking for a, uh, a, a rendezvous and he hangs up the phone. I said, what in the blazes were you doing driving off an exit? Well, I wasn't thinking. Okay, his hawk wasn't working. So what I'm talking about being present is and being available, it's being available in every way, shape, and form, everything in life. That I've always got to have my hawk going. Like, and I've been watching you people, like uh, my hawk has been watching you people as you react to what I'm doing. And, you know, I see some of you having a little trouble, you know, being sleepy or this or that or getting antsy. But my hawk is is telling me this, and I'm getting yeah okay hawk I, I I hear you thank you buddy, and but uh, a certain amount of drowsiness after we eat is natural, and if until everybody falls asleep you don't have a real bad problem, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yeah some people are going to get up and get a drink of water because there's things that you're saying that are just unbearable to hear, and I know how I would feel but if I heard them, and so you guys are guinea pigs. You're just simple cannon fodder that I'm using to get this stuff down. And I love the support that your established sobriety gives you, gives me. But some of you ain't got enough of it to be able to handle the heat. So you, what are you doing? You're getting out of the kitchen. Well, I, 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 can, I can groove on that. I understand that. And so, you know, this is the, these are the messages that Hawk and me are talking about as I'm talking to you. you know, it's, just, it's going on. Okay, before... We got into addiction so we could get totally lost. We did not want a hawk talking to us. <laughs> Imagine what the hawk would have said. Hey, you flaky flannel mouth, you're married. What the heck are you doing here? You know, that's what my hawk would have said. Who wants a hawk in that situation? You know, I shot those kind of hawks. <laughs> so as this has happened, it's an amazing thing that's happened. And one of the things that's happened, uh, I, I don't know because this is new ground and I, I've never been down that ground and I don't know, I've never heard of anybody in the 12-step program who's ever talked about it. I talk about it uh, to quite a degree on that uh, last of the New Jersey tapes. But it's like my feeling bucket is being emptied out of the old stale feelings and now all of a sudden my feeling bucket has got a lot of room in it. And so I'm feeling things far more intensely than I had ever felt things before. Like when my granddaughter was born here a year and a half ago, and my son called me in Bozeman there, I said, Mike, I said to my grandson, Robert, my God, we've got a, we've got a, a new girl in our family. There's a new soul on earth, and she's in our family. And I felt like it poured warm water in my chest. It was just this overwhelming joy. And I thought, what's wrong? I've got, you know, I've got five kids and, and six grandkids and two great grand, three great, four great grandchildren. You know, why didn't I feel those things before? Because I had all that stale junk in there, and now there's room. Uh, we have a difficulty with shows. Once in a while, my wife 
desperately needs company to a show, and so she asked me to come and see Mr. Hudson's... Uh, Mr. Holland's office. Mr. Holland's office. I said, what kind of show is it? Well, she said, it's just a feel-good show. <laughs> and, and, and I do know that you don't trust your show-watching to non-sexaholics because they don't understand our susceptibility to pictures and images. So I go in there, and I'm in just total pain at some of the things that are happening. In fact, when the, the drummer that went to Vietnam and then was killed, I was sobbing just uncontrollably. I've cried in movies, but I've never, I've never come close to that kind of depth of feeling for that thing. And then when this guy starts having this potential affair with this gal student, oh my God, and I got my eyes closed looking down and praying just solid. I must have prayed 10 minutes just, just to try to drown out what was coming into my ears even with my eyes shut looking down. And uh, so that uh, there's a richness to life today for me that I had never comprehended existed before. Now, I liken it to the calluses on a workman's hand who, who does heavy physical work. He can't feel the feel of velvet very well because his hands are so coarse. And I see that as, to me, I was so coarsened by what I did and thought that I couldn't feel the delicacy and, and lightness of life. Now, you say, well, a lot of other people can't do it either. Oh, get out of here. What do I care what the other people, I mean, I care, but I mean, that, that's, what excuse is that? That's rationalization and denial and minimization. You know, come out of it. I, you know, I left that stuff behind a long time ago. Vince would hammer that stuff. Like, why do you have to act so much like a monkey? I know you're only human. Why do you have to act so much like a monkey? And that's what it's doing. You know, I'm not as worse as. I'm not as bad as. Vince watched guys and skid. And they had shoes on that didn't match. And so he said, boy, if I ever get as bad as them, I'm going to do something about it. So here he is in a skid row bar. And if you ever got so bad his shoes don't match, he's going to do something about it. Well, he got worse than them and didn't do anything about it. And finally, oddly enough, it was one of those two guys. One of those guys was one of the two guys that came up to him as he laying in a park, sleeping off a hangover. That said, Vince, there's a way out. He said, I looked at him, Jess, and he said, they had on white shirts and shoes that matched which is a big thing when you're living on skid. So I knew they'd found a way out. And he always poo-pooed love. That was one of his weaknesses. Here you, those two guys sat with him on that park bench and all three were crying as they were telling him there was a way out. He experienced the greatest love that human beings can experience. But it was so hard for him to take in love that he, he couldn't accept that. And uh, the woman who sponsored us, the old A, woman who sponsored us, old Betsy, uh, He'd poo-pooed her one time in a meeting. We walked in, oh, there's the love lady. Love, 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 you know. But he'd had some strokes and he wasn't right in the head. Plus, he also had some resistance to receiving the idea that there is, there was real love. And he, he got more and more away from his teaching and he got out of sponsorship. He wasn't sponsored anymore by the old 12 apostles. And he got away from, from that. And... Uh, uh, he wanted me to be his pigeon and be slavish at his foot, feet and uh, got rid of me and then got into some very destructive sponsorship where when he died, the sponsees that he left behind were in a miserable state. They were, he was sponsoring some, a couple of women and one of them, it took her five, seven years before she finally saw the need to, to get true sponsorship from a woman and to get 
away from that, uh, the I, as he called it, the I over the E, the, e, the intellect over the emotions. But that shows that you, you don't ever get it made here. He got, came off skid and got it made and then went out of sponsorship and some other things and became a teacher instead of a, of a student. And if I ever get so smart in this program that I become a teacher, you take and lay a two-by-four alongside my head real hard. Say, Jess, you've confronted the hell out of me on numerous occasions in this program and I'm giving it back to you, you dummy. And it's like uh, one of the messages Harvey. I was telling Harvey about some of the things I had to say to you folks. Just don't teach him, you know, because he knows what happens between him and I when I'm telling, talking to him about problems that he's facing in his life. And he, that's what he wants me to do here. So I'm not teaching you guys nothing. I'm telling you what I've learned for those few of you who are stupid and hard-headed and corrupt as I am. And God is transforming me as fast as He can. Just uh, tell us some of the things you've learned from people that you've experienced that have tried the program and failed. And failed. Failed. Okay. Uh, you know, you ask a beautiful question here. In fact, you, you do a number of things here that are very beautiful. I asked uh, Dan about him. He said, well, that's what AA does. Well, I said, AA doesn't do that other places. And so, well, here, this is... Um, okay, let me, let me speak to another point, and then I'll get back to that question. Uh, there's, a terrible, uh, there's a terrible myth being perpetrated increasingly in the AA program and to some degree in this program, and that is that this program used to work really good and now it doesn't, or this program, AA used to work really good and then it doesn't, or this program should work better. Both of them are terrible lies. AA never worked very good. For example, uh, two pieces of evidence to that point. Bill was sober for 90 days after his spiritual experience, tried to sober up a whole bunch of people, and finally came to his wife after 90 days and said, this is not working. I haven't got anybody sober. Guys are... are they're letting them sleep here and they're leaving and ripping, off, ripping us off and leaving us. And she said, on the contrary, Bill, it is working. This is the first time you've been sober for 90 days. <laughs> uh, Clancy sat with Lois and asked her why she was so gifted. It's one of Clancy's tapes, because I don't know Clancy like a friend. In fact, I suspect a little bit of a chore for <laughs> a person to be a friend to Clancy in that way. Uh, but... Uh, she, Clancy said, why were you so inspired to say that? She said, I, it wasn't inspiration. It was just seemed like it seemed so logical to me. Okay, another story. I heard in one of the old-timer tapes, and I didn't write it down at the time, but I'm sure it's there because I would never have concocted a memory so much this way, and it fits with other things I've seen. And what this guy was saying is when the book came out in 39, there were only three people in New York with over a year's sobriety. Bill, Hank Parkhurst, the Hank that was in Bill with Bill in the Works Publishing, and then this guy, the third old-timer, was telling the story. And he said, the problem was, is Bill wanted you to get the program just like he did. So Bill went from, uh, what is it, November of 34 or early 35, when he had that uh, spiritual experience in the hospital there. 
uh, until 1939 when he'd written the book. So he went uh, four or five years with only three people sober over a year. And that's counting himself. Two other people sober over a year. How, how would you feel if you were that kind of sponsor? It's very analogous to the difficulty Roy went through where he persevered at the vineyard from 1976 to 1983 with only the most tenuous fruits. Now that is loving labor. I've never seen anything. To, and he did it all by himself without uh, uh, Bill at least had Bob to help him. And, 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 and Roy didn't have anybody to help him. So that what that's... And then he said Hank Parker got... Uh, Parker's got uh, drunk then when the book came out or left because he was saw it as an empire for him and Bill and he got mad and didn't like things. So there ended up too. But he said then the minute the book came out, he said we would hand people the book and they would get sober. So he took off in New York in 1939. Okay, what in the world is it when you can when the guy can't, is saying something to somebody and can't get him sober? But you can hand them the guy's book and they can get sober. Well, it's simple. The book ain't the guy. Like Clancy says, nobody four years sober can write the AA Big Book. It's absolutely an impossibility. Well, you look at his life, his actions, like I mentioned earlier. Those are not the actions of the man who wrote that book. Like Chuck was saying, people accuse me of being too spiritual. He said, I have never been half as spiritual in any talk I've ever given as this big book that everybody says they believe in so much. God is everything or he is nothing. There's nothing more spiritual than that. That's the core of the book. Okay? So, you know, here, here we... Uh, and, and then Dr. Bob, uh, you know, they had people, they keep revising the stories in the AA Big Book, partly because guys would drop out, even after they were, their stories were in the book. So we don't have this picture of this solid old success in the old days. This guy is a Bible-based guy who's written a series of books recently and I have them all I've followed it very carefully I don't believe it and I think it's harmful uh, to AA to bring in anything other than my higher power who I choose to call God uh, but I wanted to see how far this guy could take this idea and also wanted to pick up the history that he offers in it his last book is uh, is Amazing Grace about Grace uh, the wife of Clarence here in Cleveland I just it just came to me two days ago and I've got it with me and, and there in the preface, he justifies his books that if we just go back to Bible-based AA, as the AAs did, which they used the book of James since before they had the big book, and they used the four absolutes. He said if we'd go back to that, we'd have this practically 100% recovery that we had in those days. Okay, and there was no 100% recovery. It was just like it is now. But to me, the most significant AA story there is, is the second Bill story. And his statement in there that he says... How could I refuse those two guys' permission to talk to me when they said if they can talk to you, it will help us stay sober? He let them in to talk to him because by doing so, he was helping them stay sober. Now to me, if we ever forget that statement, our fellowship is in serious trouble. And recently, in recent months, I've told a number of sponsees to go and read the second bill story for that purpose. Yours and my job is to carry this message and then it's the other guy's job to decide whether he wants what we have and whether he's willing to go to any of these weird lengths that we got to go to to get it. Now, 
Only a... Uh, well, even the words, only a few want it. You, you see the judgment in that? I, I, I would better say it. Look at all the amazing number of people that want it. It's a miracle to me. There are 50 of you here. You know, I just need a few of you. So I'm overwhelmed with blessings. Instead of saying, oh my God, there's a million sex addicts alone in Cleveland. <laughs> and why aren't they all here? You know, at the West Side. West Side only, okay. <laughs> so, you see the difference? There aren't a few here. There's a, a multitude here. And a blessing beyond my wildest dreams. If there's ten of you, or five of you even, I can do what I'm doing here and, and, and pass on the legacy that I've got to pass on. But I'm, I'm overwhelmed with abundance. Okay, so that... You see, this gets to the question then that you're asking, which is, is there something I need to... It gets to the question you're asking, which is, it's a mystery as to why the guys drop out that we think need it so much. It's God's mystery. But when we understand it's an overwhelming, loving God, and each one of us are blessed people, then we don't need to be concerned about that. I can just enjoy the people of you who are here. My God, you know, Jerry and Gary and Terry and, you know, Dan and, you know, and uh, all of you are here with me. What a blessing. Uh, one of my school teachers that I helped uh, teach, she was an older woman, came back and retooled for teaching. And she was a third grade teacher. And you know how little girls love their third grade teacher. And two of her third grade students were sitting out at lunch with her, with uh, Sandra Feltz at uh, lunch hour. And Sandra called over to two other girls who were sitting over under a tree away from her. And they said, oh, she said, Sarah and Mary, why don't you come over and eat with us? You know, typical egotistical attitude. And one of those girls, she told me this story, you know. One of those girls said, Mrs. Feltz, we're here with you. We're here with you. And you see, you are here with me. So I must not look past you to the people who aren't here with me. I must not look for that. There's a beautiful spiritual story that I just recently ran across of a, an exceptionally devout practitioner in that particular spiritual tradition. He heard that there was a gardener in an adjoining city that was so devout that people and so holy that people couldn't believe it. So he wanted to see this holy gardener. So he went to see this man and uh, watched him selling vegetables and he was enjoying the people that you know, came by and treating each one as, you know, so important. And Well, then they went back to his room and, and, and he, oh, the, the, this monk asked, could I stay with you? And the gardener was overjoyed at the chance to offer service to him. Oh, it's such a blessing you've given me to that you allow me the chance to have you as my guest this evening. So he took him back to his place. And then uh, the monk was also impressed by his prayers and his practice. But then they laid down to go to sleep, and he was living in a very bad neighborhood, and here was this terrible, vulgar, you know, obscene songs being sung outside the window by these drunken people. And so the monk turned to the gardener, and he said, what do you make of that singing? Oh, he said, they're all going to paradise, like me. Just, you know... We don't even know. They might be in paradise already. 
Because we don't know how this world should be. We know what paradise is for us, but we don't know what it is for somebody else. So that statement of they're all going for paradise was what convicted the monk of this gardener's true spirituality. So I must always rejoice in who is here. And hard as it is sometimes, I must give no thought to those who are not here. I won't obsess on that some. Yeah. I'm John. I'm a great one. I'm a second author. Hi, Dad. I'm just wondering if you had any opinion on the uh, parameters for sponsorship. I've heard in the program, uh, well, you have to be this far in the program. You have to be on this staff. And you had any thoughts on that? Yeah. I've got the right answer. <laughs> that sounds humorous, but it's true. I'll tell you why it's true. Uh, there's two places where God is in the program more than any other places I ever see. Number one, as I said, is at first step meetings. Anybody who could be at a first step meeting and not see God is a fool, blind. The other place where God is in the program so strongly is in sponsorship. So that if everybody in this program dies and there's a guy 30 days sober, I ask him, will you be my sponsor? Because all he has to do is to see my ego and be willing to tell me the truth. Now, who isn't willing to tell, who isn't willing to be able to see someone else's ego <laughs> and tell him the truth? <laughs> now, we might have a little difficulty seeing our own ego and telling ourselves the truth, but boy, I can sure see somebody else's ego. And telling them the truth. Huh? Right? Now, you can, come across a better, you can come across a better answer than that because God speaks through us as sponsors. I've got a sponsee out in, uh, in California, Bob, and he listens to me as if God was talking. It's just spooky. It's scary to have somebody listen the way he listens. I've got sponsees. I listen to my own... I, I made tapes of the early events meetings. In fact, I was going to send them to people, but I just chickened out. It's awful. I can hardly stand to listen to it. I'm interrupting all the time. Here's this great man teaching me this great stuff. I have trouble letting him get a word in edgewise. (laughs) God. You know, it's so beautiful. It shows where I came from. Now when I call my sponsor, I shut up. Take the cotton out of my ears and put it in my mouth. That's what I do for all my sponsees. I give them a million shut-ups and a million I-don't-knows. And then I give them a million of other things, and I'll tell you that story. In another tradition, uh, a young woman in China became pregnant, a merchant's daughter, and the merchant and his wife were horrified, and who got you pregnant? And they grilled her, and, and she said, the, the new... Uh, monk who, a new spiritual teacher who came to town. So they went to him and said, you terrible man, you've gotten our daughter pregnant. And we will disgrace you in this community. And he said, I see. And so then the baby was born and they took the baby and uh, by then his reputation had been heard in town and his, he was receiving less food in his begging bowl and they, but they took the baby to the teacher and they said, here, this is your baby, you must care for it. And he said, I see. 
So then after a while, the woman relented and said it was not really him. It was the merchant's son next door that got me pregnant. So they went to the teacher and they said to the teacher, we're sorry we have wronged you. And by then he loved the baby. He said, we will take the baby back. And he handed them the baby and said, I see. So I give my sponsees one million ICs. And their job is to use them up as quickly as possible. And then when they need another million, they're to come back to me and I'll give them another million. Now, many of my student uh, sponsees, when, they, when uh, their wives are telling them some things, uh, have trouble saying, I see. Especially in the middle of the night. When they're, uh, see, the job of a, of a, a, a wife is born uh, with the knowledge of the unconscious. There is a little difference between men and women. Uh, women have knowledge of the total unconscious. They know everything that ever was, ever is, or ever will be. <laughs> no, they really do. And their job is to hand that to a man. Now, also, women are crazy. So they also, <laughs> they also hand men craziness. So what a guy's got to do is figure out, is this craziness or is this the true unconscious? And they got to sort through that. Is a, a very crude expression. Sort through the pepper and the fly shit mixed in together and pick out just the pepper. <laughs> and for a dumb guy to do that is very difficult. And I find that with my wife. But her job is to use her unconscious to expose to me my defects of character. See, I got two. I got my sponsor has help in my wife. Now my job is to be grateful when she does that, and to say I see, and then take that knowledge and use it. But sometimes I have a trouble saying, I see. And I have trouble being grateful. But that's my problem. I'll get, I'm getting better. And so I can sit and listen now to my wife a lot and say, I see. Or she'll ask me my thoughts and opinions on some very troublesome matter. I don't know. I really don't. Not better not say I don't know when it's important input for the family. But I use an awful lot of I sees and I don't knows in my daily life. And then I use an awful, awful lot of shut-ups. And I don't use near as many shut-ups as I should. Well, you can obviously see why. <laughs> the old big mouth here. Yeah. Yeah, Paul. Um, how about if you would on... Um, is this sort of a corollary young lady from Columbus was questioned uh, today. I've uh, been in a situation where I've seen or situations where I've seen meetings that were once strong just start dying. And where what? Where I've seen meetings start to die. Yeah. Um, nobody was trying to come to them anymore. Right. Um, and, and, and I'll be honest with you and everyone else here, I, I myself have tried to single-handedly save them. Right. Um, but, and I want to know how that dovetails with what you said this morning, and I truly believe in it, in doing you know, the service yep. that, that one needs to. How do you rectify the two of those, and what do you do? It's very simple. You, you work as though God does nothing, and pray as though God does everything. And when the meeting dies, you say goodbye and go to a different meeting. Or if it is revived by some good fortune of grace of God, you then enjoy the new meeting. So... It's it's simple. You see, the problem, what 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 you're running into, you personally in yourself and your own program, you're running into too much expectation and projection into the future and evaluation. And the answer is go to the meeting and do all you can and 
but if the meeting isn't helping you, then you go to a different meeting. And uh, most meetings, and most SA meetings die in the present state of our development because there aren't adequate stewards to care for the meeting. And the adequate stewards need people who are willing to listen and participate and join in. So uh, in the early days, I thought it was me that did that work in that first year. Like my son said, Dad, you're just like Johnny Appleseed. Wherever you go, a group springs up. That wasn't me that was doing the work. I was just a simple instrument. Uh, how do you get water to the grass on your lawn? What do you use? A garden hose. Is the, is a garden hose a very important thing? You can buy it for $6 at, at Walmart. Okay, you can buy guys like me it's for 6 bucks at Walmart because I was a hose pipe. Uh, that the fellowship could work through and and then reach people who also wanted to be energized and be hose pipes. And when you got 40 hoses hooked up, you can get quite a bit of water. All of a sudden, we had 40 hoses hooked up on the fire and we got the fire out so that SA finally got a solid footing, whereas before it would start up and die out, that was the that was the overwhelming pattern until then. There is no sobriety in anybody. The only person sober before that group of people is, is Catherine, who came in February 10th, and then I came in on March 3rd with all, all those other ones. And uh, even in Catherine's case, she stopped in Oklahoma City uh, in 83 at, at that meeting there, and so she knew there was a fellowship out there. So she was in a little touch with the fellowship. But everybody else with uh, 13 or 12 years, everybody who came in in 83 and 84, and I think almost everybody in 85, all had direct connections with that original group. I heard there was a guy in New Jersey who had been sober for a number of years and who died without any of us knowing who he was. But I heard you know, from Roy that that was the case. So there were some people who got some sobriety and held it for a while. But it was an isolated, out of contact with fellowship, sexual sobriety. Somebody else over here to hand? Yeah. Hi, Bob. Uh, yeah, a little. <laughs> You also just made a statement, and this is a question that's been on my head, but you also just made a statement not long ago that, uh, you know, we should uh, refrain from, I'm not going to just paraphrase here, that's my ability, we should refrain from using God. Yeah. We should stick yeah. to the higher yeah. power. I, uh, Can you explain that? I mean, yeah. Why not, yeah. Uh, well, uh, for a simple reason, it is unfeeling and uh, it is insensitive on my part. I use God like he's a kind of a kindergarten friend. Okay, uh, that's unfair. The, the most beautiful and most sensitive statement that I've ever heard in 12-step programs came from the guy in AA who said, my higher power who I choose to call God. Now, I've been taking a chance and hoping I could get away with it by using the language, the terminology that I have. Uh, but ideally, you know, if you push me to the wall, I'll stand with every time I say the higher power who I choose to call, call God, I should. Because I really saw that when the uh, SA or the AA book uh, Came to Believe came out. It was published, I think, in about 1970-something. And I opened it, as I do in the middle, just opened it up. And the first story I read, My Higher Power, Allah, helped me, so he came to believe, uh, uh, helped me come to believe that, uh, came to believe far greater, My Higher Power, Allah, helped me 
uh, restore me to sanity. And I thought, oh, I see. For him, it, his higher power is Allah. I've got a number of letters from prisons from guys who are Muslim uh, who had read my books. And it's so touching to me that they don't see my books, even though I do frequently use God there too, as a put-off. They catch my acceptance of what's there. I sponsor a guy who's Jewish, and uh, and he, uh, one time I said to him, I said, have I been properly, uh, I was concerned, because I'm prejudiced against Jews, I'm prejudiced against blacks, I'm prejudiced against a whole lot of things. I was prejudiced against Catholics. You know, I never, I just never saw one for, you know, I was prejudiced against Catholics for 20 years before I saw one. <laughs> so, so I said, I said, am I, you know, have I been fair uh, to your faith? Have uh, I've got Baptist bones. I said, have, have I offended you in any way? Oh, he said, on the contrary, no. He said, you, you have helped me see my own religion clearer than I had ever seen it before. So I was really thrilled that that had been the case. And I saw a beautiful example on him recently. He was helping a guy uh, try to get married. And this guy was one of these since exceptionally... What's that word for when you're um, a scrupulous, exceptionally scrupulous person? And he'd had a minister, uh, he's a fundamental person, and he had a minister who uh, approved of the marriage, but then the next minister, the new one that came in, did not approve of the marriage, and the, those, his fiancé's uh, father was a minister in some other denomination. So he was objecting to this marriage. And finally this Jewish guy could not handle it anymore. He said to him, he said, Have you accepted Christ as your personal Savior? And the guy says, Yeah. He said, has your fiancé accepted Christ as her personal Savior? He said, yeah. He said, well, then what are you worried about? So I was struck by, here's this Jewish guy doing an exceptional... <laughs> he's, doing this, he's doing a better job of Christian counseling than most Christian counselors. <laughs> you know, and so, so to me, um, it shows that, that if our heart is in a reasonably right place, people will cut us a lot of slack. You know, just like here today, you know, you have, you and the other people here have largely not been horrified at my too frequent use of the word God and my lack of respect for my higher power who I choose to call God. But if you nail me down or if I'm in any place in waters with someone where I'm shaky at all, I'll go to my higher power who I choose to call God. Now, it's partly a testimony to you people that I feel so safe here that I can use, in a sense, a kind of a shorthand for that term which is it does get a little awkward spelling it out that clear, but it's necessary in many situations. So don't ever get careless about it. And again, my also my hawk is kind of watching, and I haven't seen any faces turn bad on me. And if they would, it would have said something's wrong. Does that get at your question? No, I didn't put that on tape, but the question was, uh, in case... Uh, 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 I, I understand, John, that the tape is picking up these questions real well, but it was, um, I say, you know, uh, my higher power who I choose to call God, and that seems a contradiction. I, I think the question was obvious from the context. But. Yeah. Hi, Jess. I'm Tom. Hi, Tom. Um, I'm not quite sure if I'll uh, say this all right, but I'll just attempt. You don't have to. I know. <laughs> it's dealing with the issue of... Uh, the length of our sobriety, um, trying to keep pride out of it when right. you're getting further and further. Yeah. 
pride out of it, ego out of it, yeah. uh, thinking I'm better than uh, others who aren't. And you're, then also... You're going to fail. Uh, you can't keep ego out. Uh, and then also from the other point of view of, uh, you know, thinking... Uh, shitty about yourself because you keep slipping and failing at that. Okay, that's the problem. Feeling, quotes, bad about yourself because your pride keeps showing and intruding itself, and the answer is forget it. It's going to show. Like Bob from California in the early stages of sponsoring called, Yes, my pride is, sh- or my ego is showing. I said, Quit boring me. <laughs> <laughs> my ego has been big as a house here. And you guys can handle it. But don't let it bother you. Put it out in the street. You know, when I can walk up there and receive a 63-year SA sober chip, I'll probably, I'm sure, feel, you know, overwhelmingly proud and smug that none of you, the rest of you can sneak up on me because you can't find a way to get two years of sobriety in one as far as your calendar years go. Now, when that happens, there'll be people ten times as sober as me because they used a lot better, they made a lot better use of their time than I did. <laughs> like old Vince used to say, he says, I don't like to talk how long I've been sober because people, people will look at me and they say, the sure don't do much for a fella, does it? <laughs> I had some notes. What? Yeah. Meditation. How does that play a part in this? Meditation. Uh, yeah, meditation's got a big part in this. In fact, uh, let's see. I got a meditation folder here. I was going to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, meditating, finding God's will, and also in meditation, even more important than finding God's will, in meditation you learn who you are. As you sit there in blank mind meditation, as Vince used to call it, and nobody ever taught him about, uh, you know, meditation. There's a lot of meditation teaching around now. Uh, how many of you have meditated in some uh, Eastern idea at one time? Raise your hand. Okay. Um, I spent 15 years uh, in meditation, in you know, from 20 minutes to an hour a day. Uh, and the, the point of the, the spiritual teachers on that meditation is that you go to that inner place which is the, where the God within is. And then you see that God lives within you as you. you know, I am not God, but God lives in me as me. Okay. And then another part of meditation, uh, you almost... And well, there's a whole bunch of it, and God will. You need to be open to what, where God is leading you, and then follow what those leads are. Um, another part of meditation is seeking God's will and finding it for you. And I'll tell you where I'm at on that now. I did all of that kind of stuff for years, many of it, years of it before I came in here, even. And one of the most crucial experiences I had was at Christmas season in my 30s. I was trying to get that Christmas spirit. I had a wife and some little kids. And I knew when I got that Christmas spirit, then it really was, I'd be excited and I'd play the Christmas songs and do all the other stuff. And I was a devout uh, Catholic church core. Uh, I'd converted to Catholicism when I was uh, 26. And my wife was Catholic. And, uh, and it was beautiful for me. And um, 
All of a sudden it hit me. Hey, wait a minute. If it isn't Christmas every day, you're missing the point, buddy. And so then I just gave up that and worked on Christmas and Easter being every day or they were nothing. God is everything or is nothing. So I worked on the constant practice of this. Then also in uh, meditation work, I heard about walking meditation. Now that's much more restricted than just walking around meditation, but what I'm what I practice today is uh, meditation in action. One of the great, great spiritual leaders said that meditation in the midst of activity is a million times more valuable than meditation in silence. Now, I don't, hold, I don't want to argue the point. That's just what, what was said. But what, what I've attempted to be every fiber of my being from the moment I got up this morning, well, starting at 3.30, starting when I got here, starting before I got here, the whole thing has been focused on as intense an awareness as I could bring to each moment looking for what God had for me in that moment. Because that's Christmas, Easter, New Year's, every religious holiday all rolled into one has been this moment. So the moment where I'm talking to, to Dan and he says, Jess Harvey says, to throw away the notes. Or the moment when Dan says, Jess, this guy told me two things, you know. I don't drink and change everything else in my life. And then I wake up at 3.30 this morning and I think of the words, uh, it comes from one of, one of the other spiritual traditions, Dharma Combat. And I see how it applies here. And I see, I saw how it restricted Chuck in his talking because Chuck was a gifted rhetorician. And he wanted his talks to have structure. And I, and as part of me wants that too. But I saw that I couldn't have structure here. I needed to do some things. And then I had this history all written out. And then I saw, hey, I need to address that issue and pull that thing out of the closet so we see that life is life as it is rather than as we think it should be or as we want to gloss it over and turn it into. And we see the founding of this program as the ego of our founder who is the first to admit his weakness. Uh, struggling with the egos of the rest of us and hand-to-hand combat with, you know, our left hands ripped, you know, passing together and with the right hand we're cutting with knives but also trying to find God for each other, for ourselves, each other. So that is where I'm at today, and I, I don't use any prayer. I used to pray a lot, frequently during the day, and I, I don't use any, uh, hardly ever use any formal prayer. Now, once in a while I will. When I went to see my son at the hospital, I walked in the chapel and prayed. Because if I ever do anything all of the time, something is terribly wrong. Um... Uh, Vegetarians aren't supposed to eat meat, but an enlightened vegetarian eats meat when it's served him in situations where he eats meat. And the people around him have trouble with it because they're scrupulous, scrupulous and he isn't. Uh, so that in the spiritual world, God is either everything or he is nothing. And and I, I've never seen anybody that gets such a handle on God that they got it all figured out and it's just solid everything. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know what, I might tomorrow turn into a praying fiend, I don't know. But right now I'm not. I used to be a lot, you know, used to pray a ton. 
And but that's where I'm not. I'm not holding any. I'm not holding any argument. I'm not saying it's a progression. I don't know what it is. That's just where I am today. That's what I did. Um, this is what I'm doing now. And um, God will guide you how and 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 in which ways you need. Okay, we got time for one one more question. Yeah. Uh, John, I'm so thankful. Yeah, John. Yeah. When I first joined my home group uh, almost a few years ago, uh, there was a real lack of sponsoring and being sponsored. And uh, we seemed to dwell in the problem a lot. And then I saw a tent where every week more and more people came in and said, My sponsor told me, or I told somebody I was sponsoring. And I saw a transformation in the group to one where they were dealing in the problem through dealing in the solution. Uh, I just wanted to get a comment on that. Okay. Where yeah. Right. There's only uh, when I said it's selfless service, I should have said it's another thing too. And that's the talk that I gave in Baltimore. What was that? That would have been a year, it'd be a year ago in uh, July. A year ago in July, uh, July of '95. The chain of sponsorship. That is the living vine of being sponsored by only by people who are under sponsorship. And because all these other programs in our program was started, uh, both Chuck and Clancy had an important part in starting our program. And they were sponsored by guys who had been sponsored by Bill and Bob. So all sponsorship in all programs for all practical purposes goes back to Bill and Bob and through them to God. So that's the living vine, and, and, and if we're con- connected to that, we're connected, and if we aren't connected to that, we aren't connected. I don't care how much selfless service we do, it will, be, it will go wrong. So it takes the two things, and I'm so glad for your question because it, it does bring that out. Thank you very much. We look forward to our last time together here. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.